because Colorado State's the land-grant institution of state, we sort of think that the state of Colorado is our campus. We have extension offices in every county in the state, pretty much. We have forest service offices in selected areas of the state. We have agricultural experiment stations scattered all over the rural parts of the state. We have, as you say, we have our teaching experiences, whether that's Ardeck north of town or the mountain campus an hour away, the foothills, the south campus, and now Spur coming online. We really feel like the state of Colorado is our campus, and we need to we need to be out there and reach out as we can. I would also point to our involvement with the semester at sea. So the oceans are our campus too. <laughs> Let's think big. Let's think think big here. Man. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And on some occasions, we're joined by very special guests. Dr. Rick Miranda has had a 40-year career at Colorado State University. At the time of recording in early 2023, Dr. Miranda was serving as interim president for the university. On February 1st, CSU welcomed its 16th president, Amy Parsons, who appointed Dr. Miranda to be her interim executive vice president. Stick around to hear from Dr. Miranda. Rick, welcome. Yes, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We're looking forward to chatting a little bit. And as we were talking about before we, we came on air, a little bit of, of Rick, the person off campus and things that interest you. And of course, interested in your experiences here at CSU and even, you know, the educational and training pathway that led you here. But we want to start with kind of a big question, right? So when we think about research problems that CSU is well positioned to pursue, I'm interested in your insights on that rather large question. Yeah. Uh, well, there are quite a few, actually. Mm-hmm. We are a pretty comprehensive university, and we've got some great strengths uh, across the board. Um, I think there's no question, though, that when you take a look at us from kind of 30,000 feet, you sort of see the pillars of the vet school and engineering. You know, that's our tr- traditional in the agriculture space. That's We started A&M, sure. yeah. and that's still strengths of the university. So... Uh, you know, we're really well positioned in so many areas in veterinary medicine. You know, we've got one of the, the top uh, vet schools in the country, and, and that means in the world. Um, right. And uh, our investments actually in infectious disease research and in animal health and in animal reproductive health is unparalleled across the, across the globe. And so, uh, you know, there's no question you put that, that whole sector on the list. And it was an incredible boon to both us and our students and our faculty and the rest of the country that we had that capacity here during the pandemic because that expertise in infectious diseases really was able to benefit our campus, the state of Colorado. We did a lot of of stuff behind the scenes and assisting with testing and nursing home stuff and really great work. And so you, you really point to that as a pillar. You know, in the engineering space, you think uh, in terms of energy research here, we have the powerhouse facility north of campus on the north side of town. Uh, unbelievable stuff going on there, science fiction type stuff going on, <laughs> going on there. And a lot of other areas in engineering, uh, too numerous to mention in hydrology and water research, brings us 
you know, that sort of tax over when you think about water and hydrology, you start, start thinking about the impacts on agriculture and, and water research and, and how irrigation started here was the strength of the university for so many years still is and how that impacts agriculture and sort of bleeds into our other work in, in both crop science, animal science, soil science especially. We're very strong in soil science uh, here. That's probably one of the biggest strengths we have. You know, branching out from there, your own college in health and human sciences has got some fantastic programs, especially those that deal with the relationships of health with human behavior mm-hmm. and other aspects of that. So whether that's human behavior in, how, in where we live in construction or human behavior in how we deal with our relationships in human development and family studies or human behavior in how we deal with our bodies in health and exercise science, you know, right. they're all uh, interrelated. And this college kind of captures that. Uh, those interrelationships in a, in a sort of very unique and interesting way. I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of tack over to the humanities and arts, too. And I mm. think, you know, I mentioned some of our strengths in the sciences, and I don't mean to leave out my own home college of natural sciences either, but, right. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I don't want to uh, leave out the humanities where we've got some uh, extraordinary strengths in, in unexpected parts of the college. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but we've got, you know, three to five of the of the most wonderful poets in the country on our faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you look at Dan Beachy Quick or Camille Dungy or, you know, others, it's it's really incredible. So if you like poetry, which I do, uh, <laughs> this is a great place to hang out yeah. <laughs> and just yes, listen uh, once in a while. And many other parts of uh, you know, that's probably one of the most uh, humanistic sides of College of Liberal Arts. They're also, uh, you know, intimately involved in many research projects that have to do with sociology and other areas that can contribute to the big grand challenges that we face, whether that's climate issues, whether that's democracy issues, uh, whether that's poverty, uh, you name it. Uh, we have people thinking about that here at Colorado State. So those are just a few of them. I mean, how long do you want me to talk? I got a couple <laughs> hours of this queued up if you yeah. need. Just <laughs> making answers so, so much fun, right? Because they, they instantly bring people to mind and, and current projects. Michael Caroline came to mind when you were talking about CLA. Sure, right? yeah. yeah. Food system stuff. The food. Mm-hmm. You know, the pandemic, uh, we, we just had an opportunity to simultaneously interview Lisa with Nicole Earhart. And, of course, Nicole mm-hmm. and Rick Ebo were I mean, at the forefront of that work with, with skilled nursing facilities. Yep. So it's fun to chat with her sort of after the fact in some ways to, for her to reflect on a very different time for all of us, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. It's, what you've just shared is a microcosm, too, in the you know three and a half seasons we've been doing this to, to hear the range of what's going on just within our own college continues to surprise and delight us it's just you know i've spent my entire academic career i'm 26 years and i still go wow that's yeah. <laughs> that's cool something new every day exactly yeah. so, so i want to move off campus and maybe wind the tape of your life back a few years or, or decades as you prefer uh, and, and talk about <laughs> where we are always interested we ask everybody to share about their educational pathway and, and that doesn't have to start with here's when i got my phd we've we've had people sharing about second grade teachers that really had an influence on them. But talk to us a little bit about your, your pathway from Rick the young man to Rick the, the math professor and dean and provost and president. president. Yeah, so, well, I don't know if, if, if I really uh, go back to my uh, childhood education. 
<laughs> spent eight years with the nuns and then another eight years with the Jesuits. <laughs> and that's that's when I exited college and and uh, decided uh, to to go to graduate to graduate school and study mathematics. I've always been I was a math major in college and I was sort of a math nerd my whole life. So mm. and maybe I still am. So MIT's a, a wonderful place. It's an incredible. It's talk about science fiction stuff. I mean every every person you meet there is is kind of a, an incredible uh, f- you know frontier like person who's really on the bleeding edge of of uh, things and discoveries, which is incredible. And Boston and Cambridge is is sort of an extremely stimulating place. So that was a, that was a wonderful uh, half decade of my life hanging out. Uh, Hanging out there. Now, then, now, Rick, I have to ask you, and forgive me for interrupting, but first of all, your undergrad again was at Holy Cross, right? Yeah. And, and did you have sort of a moment or a person that, that opened your eyes to graduate school, or was it kind of all part of the long-range plan? I knew going into my freshman year. No, I was I, gonna... it, it wasn't quite <laughs> I knew going into my freshman year, but I was a math major from day one, and mm-hmm. I just kept going on and studying more and more. And the, and the math faculty at Holy Cross was great to me. They just kept loading me up with, with things to think about. And gave me a lot of freedom with independent study classes and uh, projects to do and summer jobs in the in the computer science department in the computer uh, labs there, and they you know they clearly invested in me, which I'm eternally grateful for. And that's and, great. And you know let me let me do the things that launched me towards the next step, which was great. So encouraged me a lot. Now, a related question. Do you come from a family of mathematicians or engineers? Or where, where did that interest Well, my dad's from? a physicist. Okay. Uh, my mother was a medical records librarian before uh, she had the kids. Uh-huh. And then she uh, left that. So, you know, we were. I, I, I wasn't a first-gen student. I was maybe a second-gen student. Okay. My father was the first person to get, get a degree in many generations, well, I think, in the nice. family. So. That's great. Now, your dissertation work was on what set of problems? What did well, I'm a pretty pure mathematician and mm-hmm. study geometry. And it's, uh, it's called algebraic geometry because I study geometric objects that are defined by polynomial equations only. So I don't do wild things. It just, it's got to be defined by a polynomial. <laughs> and the fact that it's de- the, the geometric objects are defined by polynomials really restricts what they can be. Okay. So for if you just have... You know, look in the plane. You have two variables x and y, and if if you def- if you use a polynomial like a linear polynomial like three x plus five y equals seven, well, that defines a line. And then you go to quadratic polynomials. You get circles and ellipses and things. And you go to cubic polynomials, and all of a sudden, you know, th- all the lines and conics uh, quadratic equations were studied by the Greeks. Cubics were a mystery f- until the Renaissance, and and then they started sort of getting to understand how cubic curves in the plane work. And I wrote my thesis on uh, on families of cubic curves, actually. Cool. Still, still things we don't know about them. And I wrote another paper last year about I was cubic just about curves. To ask that. That's true. <laughs> about yeah. them. But I spent my whole career sort of thinking about uh, these kinds of geometric objects, not only in the plane but in in higher dimensions as well, curves, surfaces. Yeah. So, so you, you finish a PhD in mathematics from MIT. What, what came next? Well, I had a, a sort of an instructorship at the University of Chicago for a couple of years. And then I went to Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, for a year, mm. which was a wonderful experience. Uh, 
both of those beers were great. And then I came here in 1982 and uh, took up a position as an assistant professor in the mathematics department. And who was the department head back then? His name was Bob Gaines, and he was a wonderful man. um, So Bob was the department chair for about um, five years at the time. He was sort of maybe heading into his second term as chair Mm -hmm. when uh, I came, when when he hired me. And uh, he was a man of good humor, good sense. He he was dedicated to building the department up and uh, investing in a little bit more research than had been the case in the previous generation in the math department. And he was chair for 20 years. Wow. wow. When he stepped down 15 years later, then I became the chair in 97. <laughs> <laughs> and he... Uh, became the vice provost for faculty affairs. Lauren Crabtree became the provost. He asked Bob Gaines to, uh, they were, they, they knew each other well. They played basketball together uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> all those years. Yeah. And so Lauren asked Bob, uh, would he step in as the vice provost for faculty affairs? And so he did that for a couple of years before he passed away. But he was a great mentor and a great example for university leadership. Now, Again, you presumably weren't hired as an assistant professor with a long-term vision of being department head. How did, how did that evolve? I'm always interested in well, how one finds oneself in leadership. Yeah, I, you know, it was a little bit uh, partly luck and partly the demographics of the department, to be honest. So the department and the whole university really grew a lot in the 60s, as we all know. And uh, it, we were coming out of the period in the 50s, where we transitioned from being Colorado A&M to Colorado State University, enrollments were increasing. We did a lot of hiring all across the university and in the math department. So we had staffed up in the 60s, and we had a lot of faculty. And when, So when I got here in the early 80s, there were quite a lot of faculty members who were just coming into their kind of full professor prime and they were in their 40s, right? <laughs> and that was a, you know, a whole cadre of faculty and who made up the department. And then, so then I was hired in 82. So, so they didn't do a lot of hiring in the 80s mm-hmm. because we had staffed up so much in the prior period. And so when they hired me, they hired a couple other people, but I was kind of a, a demographic that, w- that was sort of alone for a, a while. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of people who were 15, 20 years older than me. And then there was me and a couple other people. And then there, and then by the time I, you know, Bob uh, stepped down as chair, uh, we had started to hire some assistant professors. But it was this gap, right? Mm-hmm. And so when Bob stepped down, people started looking around and saying, who's going to be the chair? We had all these people who were now not in their 40s, but in their 60s. Yeah, and right. we're looking maybe that they were looking to... Uh, not commit themselves to another five or ten years <laughs> sure. of activity. So everybody started looking at me. Say, Rick, are you going to be the chair? <laughs> you're, the, you're the person now in the 40s who, yeah. who could do this. And so I said, well, you know, I'd never, I'd only been elected the executive committee once. I kept my head down. I was doing a lot of research and, and uh, mentoring graduate students, teaching undergraduate classes. I never thought about going into administration, but that moment in history came, and they started asking me to be the chair. So I said, okay, I'll be the interim chair. We'll see what happens. And it wasn't so bad. So then the dean at the time, John Reich, you know, we did a little search. And, and it was a national search, and they chose me to be the chair. So I was chair for five years. And then this, sort of the same thing happened when the dean, <laughs> the dean's job <laughs> came open. There yeah. was 
John Reich was the dean of natural sciences, and he was the second dean of the college. The first dean was Bill Cook. He was dean for 17 years, Bill. And he he had uh, been asked by the president at the time, I think it was Ray Chamberlain, to take the former College of Science and Arts. We had a big arts and sciences college and to split it into two, the College of Liberal Arts and the College of Natural Sciences. So he spent his first year as the as the sort of dean of, of the big college, splitting it, and then he became the dean of the natural sciences. And he was dean for 17 years. Wow. And then he retired, and John Reich, a physicist, he was a chemist, Bill Cook, uh, John Reich, a physicist, came in, and he was dean for 17 years. And so then, then I became the dean, and I was thinking, well, I'm, I got to be 18 years in this job. I only made it about seven because yeah. in 2009, Tony Frank sort of suddenly became the the president, and he needed a provost, and looked around and uh, found me to be the provost, and so I served as provost for about 12 years. When you think about your opportunities for administrative leadership from department head up to your current position, I'm interested in things you like best. I'm going to ask the inverse in just a few minutes, you know, the challenges that attend leadership, but let's start with the good stuff first. Well, the things you you like best are to be able to say yes to great ideas. Sure. Mm. I mean, there's no shortage of great ideas at a place like this. I mean, you all are examples of folks with great ideas. (laughs) And uh, if if you just talk to people, you realize there's so much opportunity here. And so, so the things, you know, the only, the, one of the hard parts of the job is just to to give those great ideas a platform and a voice to reach the the president and the provost's desk, so you so you get a chance to evaluate. Then it's sometimes a little Sophie's choice to to select those few things, but sure. to be able to say yes to great ideas is is one of the great pleasures uh, of the of the leadership positions, and I and I think that's one of the things I enjoy the most to see to see things that you've you know, invested in blossom. I I always used to say to people, look, I mean, what's the provost do? Well, you know, I'm not up there in the in the admin building making all these sort of Wizard of Oz decisions, right? <laughs> uh, the two big roles are to be a cheerleader and to be a checkbook. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, had, the, I had access to the finances. I knew where the where some of the opportunities for resources were, and I could I could sort of be a champion for the great, those great ideas. And so those, I always viewed the role as sort of those two aspects more than that I was, uh, you know, really driving the university in a particular direction. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the challenges are probably related to what you've just articulated in terms of... This area is the flip side. Yeah. <laughs> There's a heads and a tails to these coins, sure. right? So, yeah. so one of the hardest things is to be able to say to somebody who brought you a great idea, says, I, I'm sorry, we just ran out of resources and I can't fund you this year. Mm-hmm. I can't, we, can't we, ought, we better not start that program. Mm-hmm. That's always a hard conversation because... Both of us want to do it, and I feel like you know those are the hard. It was hard because I feel like I couldn't f- somehow find the resources to make that happen. And I always felt you know uh, that was part of the my inadequacy of the job. You know? Okay, I mean, we all know that resources are finite, so right. it's not all my fault. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you know not not being able to to make those investments. Um, some other hard parts of the job, seeing good people leave the university. I mean, you know, faculty uh, and staff at universities are pretty mobile. Mm-hmm. 
uh, workforce, mm-hmm. if I can use uh, HR terminology. We hire people all the time, great people, but we also see people sort of leave the university for usually great reasons. Mm-hmm. They have great opportunities. And it was always hard to watch someone great have you know, think that they have to leave because the opportunities somewhere else were better than here mm-hmm. in their minds. Sure. And, uh, and sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't, and they want to come back. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that happened too. Yeah. Um, but that was also a sort of difficult part of the job to, to understand, okay, how do we try to retain somebody or how do we try to replace somebody? Of course, budget issues are kind of paramount when you live in the admin building. So, mm-hmm. But those are kind of, I always viewed those as secondary mm-hmm. uh, annoyances more than real problems that, you know. Of course, when the recession hit in 09 and we you lost $50 million, it was more than an annoyance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And we had to scramble and sort of figure out, okay, where's the arrow money coming from? How are we going to, you know, what's the, what kind of, how are we going to do some sensible trimming and stay within our, but you know, this was serious business. But, but most of the time, uh, I viewed the, the budgets as more of an opportunity than a problem. Okay. Let's try to find some resources uh, to, in order to do the things we need to do. Yeah, that's great. So I, I have a twofold question. It's, um, you know, in the, the 40 years now that you've been here, ownership might share the, the sort of biggest changes institution-wide, things that really sort of stand out for you. The second-order question is the same thing related to the research enterprise. Well, uh, I think, you know, one of the – well, I was going to talk about the research. When I first came here, uh, although we had sort of strengths in uh, engineering and vet med – uh, I think the rest of the university was a little, little behind those two. And now what I've seen over the decades is that those those areas have stayed strong and the rest of the sort of university has kind of met their challenge and, and also gotten strong. And so we've got incredible strengths almost everywhere you look. So I really feel great about the trajectory of Colorado State coming from not quite a one-trick pony, but a... But, you know, a, a more focused and uh, uh, a, sort of a less broad uh, university to what we are now is really a comprehensive R1 university where we've got strengths in almost every aspect of human endeavors that you can think of. Unbelievable opportunities for students to come here and study almost anything their heart desires and to get a great degree to go do whatever they want to do. That just wasn't the case sort of 40 years ago. It was a little bit, a little bit more restricted, I sure. think. Mm-hmm. So on the research side, I, I would, when you really stand and look at the university from 30,000 feet, mm-hmm. you see an incredible institution that has matured and to become, you know, in that sort of top rank of, of uh, universities in the country and, and across the world. I would tack over the student side too. And w- w- we see our student body more and more diverse every year. Mm-hmm reaching deeper into the population of the state of Colorado and encouraging students to come here, providing experiences uh, in ways that we didn't really understand how to do well before. We've gotten a lot more, got a lot better at providing experiential learning opportunities for students with internships, with high-impact practices. Undergraduate research here has just exploded. Um, it's it's uh, a much better place pedagogically than it was also. So, what, you know, I think those two things are not unrelated, by the way. Sort of sure. our teaching mission and our research mission should be, and I think many in many dimensions are here at Colorado State, sort of intimately intertwined. Mm-hmm. And it's really 
for a place like us, it's impossible to make great progress in one and leave the other behind. These co- they go hand in hand. The physical space has changed considerably as well. When one looks out the window in 1982 versus now, the landscape's considerably different. So Yeah, so my... So the math department used to be in the E-wing of engineering. And when I was department chair, actually, we, I supervised the move from the E-wing of engineering to the Weber building next door. And they had completely renovated the interior of the Weber building, which was really old chemistry and labs, which was, were awful. I mean, it was a terrible <laughs> No, no, it's a pretty nice place to hang out. Yeah, <laughs> and you see that kind of thing uh, everywhere. When I, when I think back in my first 15 years here in the E-Wing of Engineering. We used to call it cell block E. Uh, <laughs> my, my office was pretty tiny. Yeah. It was There were identical little cubicle-type off, offices mm-hmm. across the hallway from the classrooms there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult to just, for me to talk to three of my PhD students in my office. It was oh so small. Gosh, so now uh, uh, the facilities here... Uh, are, are really uh, the, the things we've built over the last 15 years or so have been are spectacular. Whether you go to the behavioral sciences building or the, uh, the uh, Scott building in, in engineering, the renovation of the student center, the renovation of the Morgan Library, looking forward to the upcoming renovation of Clark. Animal Sciences in Shepherdson, renamed Nutrien, is fantastic. This building, when we were sitting in Spruce Hall, was upgraded quite a bit to 10 years ago. Uh, we really went on a concerted and deliberate building and renovation effort since about 05, I would say, that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the campus has been transformed. Sure has. Uh, it's incredible. When, when you... Uh, see the alums come back on homecoming who haven't been here in a while. I mean, they're, they're walking around with their mouths open. Yeah. I mean, really? <laughs> Luckily, the oval kind of looks the same. Yes. Well, behind the walls, the buildings are, are different. I mean, you know, you go into the Tilt Building, it's beautiful. Yeah. We've restored the Great Hall of the old library. Um, and the musicians have moved over across the street to the old high school, which has been turned into the University Center of the Arts. That's an incredible facility. We hosted uh, the National Association of Music Educators uh, a few years ago when UCA was just, the, the renovation was just a few years old. And we held most of the uh, meetings over there. It was a summer conference. And these music educators were just wowed by what was going, wow, what, what, what we had built there. Not only renovating the old high school, but adding Griffin Hall on the, mm-hmm. on the north wing there. And uh, they were coming up to me. I was sort of a new provost at the time. They were coming up to me saying, how did you do this? What did you, where did you get to, yeah, how, did you hearing, talk, right? how did you talk your president to <laughs> investing in this? Because all those musicians really wanted that kind of facility for them. And you, you just see that, you know, everywhere on campus. And when you look over the 15 years plus that we've really done, done this, you see almost every college, uh, every department even, has gotten some attention in their facilities. And that's, so I think we've done a, we, we've uh, done a good job of, of trying to lift all the boats from this effort. It was, a, it was a struggle, I think, when you look at the big building booms of the uh, post-war era in the 50s and 60s, when, you know, the engineering building was built and the student center was built and Morgan Library, the old Morgan Library was built and many of this, many of the old buildings were built. Then we sort of stopped building for a while. And maybe in, in that pause in building after the big effort we made in the 50s and 60s, then we didn't build much in the 70s and 80s and 90s mm-hmm. and it started to show. 
Mm-hmm. And the uh, attractiveness of the campus and the utility of the facilities and the classrooms and the offices were really starting to hurt us in recruiting, not only recruiting students, but recruiting faculty and, and staff, too. Uh, it's, it was uh, recognized by the, the leadership there in, the, in those mid-2000s that, okay, we got to turn this around. And we put in place uh, funding plans and uh, did some borrowing. Uh, students helped out with their facility fee mm-hmm. uh, efforts and their, their willingness to invest in the campus. And you fast forward these 15 plus years and the place is transformed in really great ways. And so now you see students from all over the country uh, wanting to come here. Why? Because it's, it's a great place to be right. and it's a great place to work and it's a great place to learn. Here, here. Yes. You have such an interesting vantage point of looking at leadership and the evolution of the many different leaders that you've seen, including yourself. So I'm interested in knowing how you've seen the leaders transform and contribute to the university in their own ways. Well, I mean, we have been blessed with some some great leadership here who really had the both the foresight to, to say yes to those great ideas when they came around. And, and not only do you have to say yes, but you also have to say yes in a timely way because sometimes those brass rings, they don't come around twice. Right. You've got to grab things. I'm the president of the university for another week here, and I report to <laughs> report to Tony Frank as the chancellor. Uh, in the last couple of years, I was the system chief academic officer, reported to Tony Frank as the chancellor. Before that, I was the provost and reported to Tony Frank <laughs> for, for 10 or 12 years. And then before that, I was the dean, and I reported to Tony Frank <laughs> when he was the provost. So, yeah. so Tony, I think, has been my direct supervisor for almost 20 years. And, you know, I would point to his leadership as really been a – a key linchpin of the progress that Colorado State's made over the last 20 years. I've watched him uh, lead the university, lead not only lead the university with his speeches and rhetoric and e- long emails and yes. stuff, but also watched him in small meetings with you know three people, five people, 12 people, and seen exactly how organized he is and how uh, committed he is to doing things right and doing the right thing, which are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he, he kind of gets both ends of that. And uh, so he was great, a great model and a mentor over these years. Certainly the best, uh, the, the best person that I've seen in leadership roles at the university uh, since I've been at the campus. I've been very fortunate. To, I think we've been fortunate to have him, and he's a big part of the progress of the university. Here, here. You know, one of the fun things to contemplate is this notion that, that the campus is, is sort of plural. We think about the South Campus where the, that teaching hospital is. And, of course, they've got huge plans coming up in the next five or six years for continued growth. We've got the Foothills Campus. We have the beautiful little mountain campus. And we have a new jewel in, in Denver as well on the Spur Campus. Yeah. So just interested in reflections on, on the, the borders being somewhat porous in some ways, right? Well, yeah, yes, but uh, it's, not, it's not a new idea. Right. So— because Colorado State's the land-grant institution of the state, we sort of think that the state of Colorado is our campus. We have extension offices in every county in the state, pretty much. We have forest service offices in selected areas of the state. We have agricultural experiment stations scattered all over the rural parts of the state. We have, as you say, we have our teaching experiences, whether that's Ardeck north of town or the mountain campus an hour away, the foothills the South Campus and now Spur coming online. We really feel like the state of Colorado is our campus and we need to we need to be out there and reach out 
as we can. I would also point to our involvement with the semester at sea. So the oceans are our campus, too. <laughs> Let's think big. Let's think, think, think big here, Mark. So, so uh, the, um, the, uh, really, the opportunities for experiential learning uh, here at Colorado State are unmatched anywhere. We've got the Toto Santos campus in, in the Baja also, you didn't mention. So uh, when you sort of start listing all of these assets that we have, Many of them are here in the state of Colorado. Some of them are outside the state. Uh, the opportunities for students are incredible. You know, we live in such a beautiful state, too. And Chris Melby and I have had a you know, 25-year running joke that if we ever plant a mountain campus in Uray, that we'd be happy to serve in any capacity necessary. Because <laughs> 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 it's so beautiful down there. I, I, a couple more things about your leadership. I, I want you to, you know, if you were to, to talk to somebody who's thinking, I... I you know, have been in my position for a while, leadership opportunities, the opportunity to serve appeals to me. What kind of counsel would you give to somebody that's in that position? Well, I think, you know, one of the things you want to do when you approach a leadership position is is approach it with humility and, and with a, a mindset that you're really there to listen first and then to act second. And I think, um, and, and, to treat leadership positions as a partnership with the with the folks you're working with, rather than a hierarchical relationship, and I think that's so important to sort of engender the kind of culture that we like to have here at Colorado State, and to and I think the kind of culture that's healthy for any organization. And I think you get a lot better decisions made when you have that attitude as well. So that's one thing I'd say. Another thing I'd point out is that to someone who's taking up sort of administrative roles is, is to do the job that you have rather than to think about the next job you're going to have. Because right? mm-hmm. it's so, uh, I think a lot of people, and I don't think this happens as much at CSU actually. I think we've got a pretty healthy attitude. For me. But when I go around the country, I see a lot of people who are doing a job but looking for the next job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I always feel sorry for those people. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I was lucky enough to have a whole series of jobs. I can't stay in a job more than five years. I keep getting kicked out. Uh, but I was never really looking for the next job. <laughs> so I had a job. I liked it. I was doing it. And if the next opportunity came along, I'd, I'd look at it. But I, I wasn't looking for it. And mm. it's a different thing. And I, and I think uh, that's important. I think so. Think about the job you have and, and try to find a way to make it make yourself happy doing it well. Well said. That's great. You know, I've had the good fortune of working closely with you for a number of years on a variety of things, from institutional learning objectives to the provost ethics colloquium. And I can tell you that, you know, you, you model really nicely what you just articulated. I've always enjoyed the opportunity to hang out with you and think together and well, see thanks, if we can yeah. tackle problems. It's, it's, I really do appreciate that. I've said many times that, you know, I admire leaders who take their role and responsibility seriously, but don't take themselves too seriously, right? Because that can get a little, you know, <laughs> hard to handle yeah, after yeah. a while. You know, I'm interested in whether you have particular characters from over the course of your 40 years here that are, are memorable to you. You know, my very first year here, I was uh, a brand new assistant professor. And like I said, they hired two or three of us that one year. Uh, those years, and it was one was one guy who uh, came by uh, Richard Games, who had come the year before, and he was uh, we became friends. 
about the same age. And he came to me uh, that first month or two that I was on campus. And he said, Rick, uh, the uh, retired professors in the math department have a bowling team in the in the bowling league. And they asked me to join their bowling team. <laughs> and and I thought it would be fun if you, you know, came along too as as sort of the the sub, the sixth man on the team. Yeah. And we could go together. Because <laughs> everyone else was in their eighties. Oh, yeah. He needed somebody closer. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> and so I we'd go bowling once a week with the uh, retired math professors. Uh and the this was a cast of characters, which you know, from a from a bygone era, sure, right? Sure. They were they came in the forties <laughs> to, to Colorado A and M, and uh, you know the stories they would tell while we while we tried to hit a few pins <laughs> was really something. Les Madison was the uh, the sort of ringleader, and uh, he was a former department chair mm. of the math department. And if you go over by the uh, greenhouses there, you'll see the Madison Observatory. There's mm. a little uh, there's a little telescope down mm. there. Cool. That, uh, is named after Les oh, Madison because back in the day, back in the 40s, astronomy was part of the math department <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, he, Les was sort of teaching the astronomy classes in addition to – because there's a lot of, you know, mathematics. Sure, sure. Astronomy. Yeah. And so uh, they they named the uh, little telescope after the Madison Observatory. So That's cool. Uh, so, you know, but th- there's so many people that you encounter over the years that, uh, that are sort of great – Great characters, great people to talk to, and, and wonderful colleagues. Part of the fun that keeps us here for decades, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to pull us off campus again for a little while. We started with your educational trajectory, but talk to us about family and kids and, of course, grandkids. And- yeah. Well, my wife, Jean, is, uh, is also a math professor. She just retired in May. Uh, last Congratulations for her. So uh, she wanted to spend more time with our, our grandkids. And so I'm a bachelor this uh, <laughs> this spring. She went to – so uh, my oldest son, Danny, is uh, lives in New Jersey, has two kids, six and four. And my middle child, Maria, is uh, lives in Minneapolis and also has two kids. And my youngest, Joey, lives here in, in uh, Fort Collins. He's a ceramics artist here in town. Okay. Yeah, so it's been – been doing great. Danny's the biomedical engineer, and Maria's a chemist. Works for 3M, and like I said, Joey's a potter. So wow. he just got his master's degree. Finished his master's in the leadership and entrepreneurship in the arts program here. The oh, Leap good program. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So uh, yeah. been I'm real proud of them. And two PhDs and a master's degree yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the that's in the family. So yeah. we're overeducated. <laughs> <laughs> And then personal interests, and those of us that have known you for a while know that you have a, a gift of singing. So yeah, the Rockies have even been blessed with you. Yeah, sang the national anthem once. Yeah, I've been in choirs my whole life. Yeah, I have a tenor voice, and that's always rare, so I get recruited. It's easy for me to join a choir because we always need tenor. <laughs> hey, buddy. So, yeah. So was, yeah, so I've done that a lot over the years, and I even conducted the church choir for about 15 years. Oh, St. Right? Joe's, right? St. Joe's, yeah. And uh, my final year, I sort of stepped down as the choir director when I became the provost. It was a little too much. Mm-hmm. But the last year, I took the choir to Ireland. Oh, and wow. we sang our way from Galway to Dublin. Oh, <laughs> Every wow. night at a different church. Or <laughs> a fine memory. Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. That's sweet. 
Well, let me wrap us up with, with some reflections on what you like best about working at CSU that's really important and integrated land-grant institution. What do I like best about it? Well, the people, inter intersecting here, here. with the people <laughs> and, and sort of uh, making sure that, uh, you know, that, that the interactions I have are productive and fun for people. I like to have fun, by the way. I'm sort of famous for joking around enough to keep the meetings light, and, and, and I think that helps. Um, Agreed. And, uh, and, and a, lot of, a lot of my colleagues uh, are similarly oriented and enjoy <laughs> Enjoy it. They enjoy enjoying themselves, which not everybody does, right? But uh, that's been a great pleasure to to experience that over the years. So, so you'd have to say, you know, just working with all the people has been a real pleasure. Whether I was in the math department, mostly interacting with the students and the faculty in the in the department, or whether I was in the dean's office, learning about all the other departments in the college through. When I first got there, I had nothing. I didn't hardly know what chemistry was. Now I have to. <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm in charge of the chemists. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was a great, uh, great learning experience. Working with some some great, uh, great leaders in the other parts of the college. And then when I became the provost, it opened up the whole university to me. And uh, you just realize, sort of, day after day after day, the great people that you're surrounded by here. And uh, and I always gravitated to the great ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rick, I, you know, this has been so interesting and so much fun. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a conversation on, on a professional life that's characterized by a consistent willingness to serve. And I, I just want to say thanks. Yes, we appreciate thank it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yes, appreciate it's it. It's been, a, it's been an honor to be in the president's office this last few months. And looking forward to working with Amy. She's going to be great. Great to work with. And we know her well. So here, here. That's good. If you don't mind forecasting the future of CSU a little bit, you've given us some awesome history lessons on the campus and how it's grown. But where do you see the university moving forward? Well, I think there's going to be um, progress in student success, uh, progress in, uh, providing in, in providing the kind of curriculum and evolving our curriculum to, to the uh, kinds of disciplines and interdisciplinary opportunities that students really are demanding now. Mm. I think we're going to find ways to de-emphasize the silos between the disciplines and find ways to to open up students' studies more oriented towards those great wicked problems that we're facing, whether that's climate, whether that's poverty, whether that's democracy. Um, I think there's we're going to open up the curriculum in the next 10 years so that so students clearly see Pass towards studying the kind of problems they're really interested in, and not being sort of forced to to uh, only study one thing. On the on the research side, you know, it's hard to predict what <laughs> where research is going, um, but I think you, the university is, is positioning itself. I think Alan Rudolph's done a great job the last ten years. Bill Farland before him, Tony Frank before Bill, uh, in in investing sensibly in our research assets here and hiring great people to do interesting projects and interesting research themes. And I think that the kinds of research we will do and the kinds of contributions our faculty will make on those great grand challenges will resonate well with the curricular side as well. So these will also go hand in hand. And I think I'm looking forward to, you know, 10 years from now where those are even more closer 
closely bound together than they are now. That's awesome. Looking well, forward to it. Here, here. <laughs> Rick, thanks a ton for giving us some of your time. We know you're busy and we really enjoyed the chat. So did I. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks, Avery. Great. My pleasure. Thank you. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one, two, and three. And if you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.